children's room welcome back to our read-along podcast we are going to wrap up our book mary poppins this week so let's open our books and find out what happens next had been in a hurry and when she was in a hurry she was always cross everything Jane did was bad everything Michael did was worse she even snapped at the twins Jane and Michael kept out of her way as much as possible for they knew that there were times when it was better not to be seen or heard by Mary Poppins I wish I were invisible said Michael when Mary Poppins had told him that the very sight of him was more than any self-respecting person could be expected to stand. We shall be, said Jane, if we go behind the sofa. We can count the money in our money boxes, and she may be better after she's had her supper. So they did that. Six pence and four pennies. That's ten pence. And a half penny and three penny bit, said Jane, counting up quickly. Four pennies and three farthings and... And that's all, sighed Michael, putting his money in a little heap. That'll do nicely for the poor box, said Mary Poppins, looking over the arm of the sofa and sniffing. Oh no, said Michael reproachfully. It's for myself. I'm saving. Huh, for one of those aeroplanes, I suppose, said Mary Poppins scornfully. No, for an elephant. A private one, for myself, like Lizzie at the zoo. I could take you for rides then, said Michael, half looking and half not looking at her to see how she would take it. Humph, said Mary Poppins, what an idea. But they could see that she was not quite so cross as before. I wonder, said Michael thoughtfully, what happens in the zoo at night when everybody's gone home? Care killed a cat, snapped Mary Poppins. I wasn't caring, I was only wondering, corrected Michael. Do you know? He inquired of Mary Poppins, who was whisking the crumbs off the table in double quick time. One more question from you and spit spot to bed you go, she said, and began to tidy the nursery so busily that she looked more like a whirlwind in a cap and apron than a human being. It's no good asking her. She knows everything, but she never tells, said Jane. What's the good of knowing if you don't tell anyone, grumbled Michael but he said it under his breath so that Mary Poppins couldn't hear. Jane and Michael could never remember having been put to bed so quickly as they were that night. Mary Poppins blew out the light very early and went away as hurriedly as though all the winds of the world were blowing behind her. It seemed to them that they had been there no time, however, when they heard a low voice whispering at the door. Hurry, Jane and Michael, said the voice. Get some things on and hurry. They jumped out of their beds, surprised and startled. Come on, said Jane, something's happening. And she began to rummage for some clothes in the darkness. Hurry, called the voice again. 
Oh dear, all I can find is my sailor hat and a pair of gloves, said Michael, running round the room, pulling at drawers and feeling along shelves. Those'll do. Put them on. It isn't cold. Come on. Jane herself had only been able to find a little coat of John's, but she squeezed her arms into it and opened the door. There was nobody there, but they seemed to hear something hurrying away down the stairs. Jane and Michael followed. Whatever it was, or whoever it was, kept continually in front of them. They never saw it, but they had the distinct sensation of being led on and on by something that constantly beckoned them to follow. Presently, they were in the lane, their slippers making a soft hissing noise on the pavement as they scurried along. Hurry, urged the voice again from a nearby corner, but when they turned it, they could still see nothing. They began to run, hand in hand, following the voice down the streets, through alleyways, under arches, and across parks, until, panting and breathless, they were brought to a standstill beside a large turnstile in a wall. Here you are, said the voice. Where? called Michael to it. But there was no reply. Jane moved towards the turnstile, dragging Michael by the hand. Look, she said, don't you see where we are? It's the zoo! A very bright full moon was shining in the sky, and by its light Michael examined the iron grating and looked through the bars. Of course, how silly of him not to have known it was the zoo. But how shall we get in, he said. We've no money. That's all right, said a deep gruff voice from within. Special visitors allowed in free tonight. Push the wheel, please. Jane and Michael pushed and were through the turnstile in a second. Here's your ticket, the gruff voice said, and looking up, they found that it came from a huge brown bear who was wearing a coat with brass buttons and a peaked cap on his head. In his paw were two pink tickets, which he held out to the children. But we usually give tickets, said Jane. Usual is as usual does. Tonight you receive them, said the bear, smiling. Michael had been regarding him closely. I remember you, he said to the bear. I once gave you a tin of golden syrup. You did, said the bear, and you forgot to take the lid off. Do you know I was more than ten days working at that lid? Be more careful in the future. But why aren't you in your cage? Are you always out at night, said Michael. No, only when the birthday falls on a full moon. But you must excuse me. I must attend to the gate. And the bear turned away and began to spin the handle of the turnstile again. Jane and Michael, holding their tickets, walked on into the zoo grounds. In the light of the full moon, every tree and flower and shrub was visible, and they could see the houses and cages quite clearly. There seems to be a lot going on, observed Michael. And indeed there was. Animals were running about in all the paths, sometimes accompanied by birds and sometimes alone. Two wolves ran past the children, talking eagerly to a very tall stork who was tiptoeing between them, with dainty, delicate movements. Jane and Michael distinctly caught the words, birthday and full moon, as they went by. In the distance, three camels were strolling along side by side, and not far away, a beaver and an American vulture were deep in conversation. And they all seemed to the children to be discussing the same subject. Whose birthday is it, I wonder, said Michael. But Jane was moving ahead, gazing at a curious sight. 
Just by the elephant stand, a very large, very fat old gentleman was walking up and down on all fours, and on his back, on two parallel seats, were eight monkeys going for a ride. Why, it's all upside down, exclaimed Jane. The old gentleman gave her an angry look as he went past. Upside down, he snorted. Me, upside down, certainly not. Gross insult. The eight monkeys laughed rudely. Oh, please, I didn't mean you, but the whole thing, explained Jane, hurrying after him to apologize. On ordinary days, the animals carry human beings, and now there's a human being carrying the animals. That's what I meant. But the old gentleman, shuffling and panting, insisted that he had been insulted, and hurried away with the monkeys screaming on his back. Jane saw it was no good following him, so she took Michael's hand and moved onwards. They were startled when a voice, almost at their feet, hailed them. Come on, you two, in you come. Let's see you dive for a bit of orange peel you don't want. It was a bitter, angry voice, and looking down, they saw that it came from a small black seal who was leering at them from a moonlit pool of water. Come on now, and see how you like it, he said. But... But we can't swim, said Michael. Can't help that, said the seal. You should have thought of that before. Nobody ever bothers to find out whether I can swim or not. What? What's that? He spoke the last question to, he spoke the last question to another seal who had emerged from the water and was whispering in his ear. Who? said the first seal. Speak up. The second seal whispered again. Jane caught the words, special visitors friends of, and then no more. The first seal seemed disappointed, but he said politely, but he said politely enough to Jane and Michael, oh, beg pardon, pleased to meet you, beg pardon, and he held out his flipper and shook hands limply with them both. Look where you're going, can't you, he shouted as something bumped into, bumped into Jane. She turned quickly and gave a little frightened start as she beheld an enormous lion. The eyes of the lion brightened as he saw her. Oh, I say, he began. I didn't know it was you. This place was so crowded tonight, and I'm in such a hurry to see the humans fed. I'm afraid I didn't look where I was going. Coming along? You oughtn't to miss it, you know. Perhaps, said Jane politely, you'd show us the way. She was a little uncertain of the lion, but he seemed kindly enough. And after all, she thought, everything is topsy-turvy tonight. Delighted, said the lion in a rather mincing voice, and he offered her his arm. She took it, but to be on the safe side, she kept Michael beside her. He was such a round, fat little boy, and after all, she thought, lions are lions. Does my mane look nice, asked the lion as they moved off. I had it curled for the occasion. Jane looked at it. She could see that it had been carefully oiled and combed into ringlets. Very, she said, but... Isn't it rather odd for a lion to care about such things? I thought, what? My dear young lady, the lion, as you know, is the king of beasts. He has to remember his position. And I, personally, am not likely to forget it. I believe a lion should always look his best, no matter where he is. This way. And with a graceful wave of his forepaw, he pointed towards the big cat house and ushered them in at the entrance. Jane and Michael caught their breaths at the sight that met their eyes. The great hall was thronged with animals, 
Some were leaning over the long bar that separated them from the cages. Some were standing on the seats that rose in tiers opposite. There were panthers and leopards, wolves, tigers, and antelopes, monkeys and hedgehogs, wombats, mountain goats and giraffes, and an enormous group composed entirely of kittiwakes and vultures. Splendid, isn't it, said the lion proudly, just like the dear old jungle days. But come along, we must get good places. And he pushed his way through the crowd, crying, gangway, gangway, and dragging Jane and Michael after him. Presently, through a little clearing in the middle of the hall, they were able to get a glimpse of the cages. Why, said Michael, opening his mouth very wide, they're full of human beings. And they were. In one cage, two large, middle-aged gentlemen in top hats and striped trousers were prowling up and down, anxiously gazing through the bars as though they were waiting for something. Children of all shapes and sizes, from babies in long clothes upwards, were scrambling about in another cage. The animals outside regarded these with great interest, and some of them tried to make the babies laugh by thrusting their paws or their tails in through the bars. A giraffe stretched his long neck out over the heads of the other animals and let a little boy in a sailor suit tickle its nose. In a third cage, three elderly ladies in raincoats and galoshes were imprisoned. One of them was knitting, but the other two were standing near the bars shouting at the animals and poking at them with their umbrellas. "'Nasty brutes, go away. I want my tea,' screamed one of them. "'Isn't she funny?' said several of the animals, and they laughed loudly at her. "'Jane, look,' said Michael, pointing to the cage at the end of the row. "'Isn't that Admiral Boom?' said Jane, looking very surprised. And Admiral Boom it was. He was ramping up and down in his cage, coughing and blowing his nose and sputtering with rage. "'Bless my gizzard! All hands to the pump! Land ho!' shouted the admiral. Every time he came near the bars, a tiger prodded him gently with a stick, and this made Admiral Boom swear dreadfully. "'But how did they all get in here?' Jane asked the lion. "'Lost,' said the lion, or rather, left behind. "'Ah, now they're going to be fed,' said the lion, excitedly pressing forward into the crowd. "'Here come the keepers!' Four brown bears, each wearing a peaked cap, were trundling trolleys of food along the little corridor that separated the animals from the cages. Stand back there, they said, whenever an animal got in the way. Then they opened a small door in each cage and thrust the food through on pronged forks. Jane and Michael had a good view of what was happening, through a gap between a panther and a dingo. Bottles of milk were being thrown in to the babies, who made soft little grabs with their hands and clutched them greedily. The older children snatched sponge cakes and doughnuts from the forks and began to eat ravenously. Plates of thin bread and butter and wholemeal scones were provided for the ladies in galoshes, and the gentlemen in top hats had lamb cutlets and custard in glasses. These, as they received their food, took it away into a corner, spread handkerchiefs over their striped trousers, and began to eat. Presently, as the keepers passed down the line of cages, a great commotion was heard. Blast my vittles! Call that a meal? A skimpy little round of beef and a couple of cabbages? New Yorkshire pudding? Outrageous! Up with the anchor! And where's my port? Port, I say! Heave her over! Below there, where's the admiral's port? Listen to him. 
He's turned nasty, I tell you. He's not safe, that one, said the lion. Jane and Michael did not need to be told whom he meant. They knew Admiral Boone's language too well. Well, said the lion, as the noise in the hall grew less uproarious. That appears to be the end, and I'm afraid, if you'll excuse me, I must be getting along. See you later at the great chain, I hope. I'll look out for you. And, leading them to the door, he took his leave of them, sidling away, swinging his curled mane, his golden body dappled with moonlight and shadow. Oh, please, Jane called after him, but he was out of hearing. I wanted to ask him if they'd ever get out, the poor humans. Why, it might have been John and Barbara, or any of us. She turned to Michael, but found that he was no longer by her side. He had moved away along one of the paths, and, running after him, she found him talking to a penguin, who was standing in the middle of the path with a large copybook under one wing and an enormous pencil under the other. He was biting the end of it thoughtfully as she approached. I can't think, she heard Michael saying, apparently in answer to a question. The penguin turned to Jane. Perhaps you can tell me, he said. Now, what rhymes with Mary? I can't use contrary, because that has been done before, and one must be original. If you're going to say fairy, don't. I've thought of that already. But it's not a bit like her. It won't do. Harry? said Michael brightly. Mm, not poetic enough, observed the penguin. What about wary? said Jane. Well, the penguin appeared to be considering it. It's not very good, is it? he said forlornly. I'm afraid I'll have to give up. You see, I was trying to write a poem for the birthday. I thought it would be so nice if I began, Oh, Mary, Mary. And then I couldn't get any further. It's very annoying. They expect something learned from a penguin, and I don't want to disappoint them. Well, well, you mustn't keep me. I must get on with it. And with that, he hurried away, biting his pencil and bending over his copybook. This is all very confusing, said Jane. Whose birthday is it, I wonder? Now, come along, you two, come along. You want to pay your respects, I suppose, it being the birthday and all, said a voice behind them. And turning, they saw the brown bear who had given them their tickets at the gate. Oh, of course, said Jane, thinking that was the safest thing to say, but not knowing in the least whom they were to pay their respects to. The brown bear put an arm around each of them and propelled them along the path. They could feel his warm, soft fur brushing against their bodies and hear the rumblings his voice made in his stomach as he talked. Here we are, here we are, said the brown bear, stopping before a small house whose windows were all so brightly lit that if it hadn't been a moonlight night, you would have thought the sun was shining. The bear opened the door and gently pushed the two children through it. The light dazzled them at first, but their eyes soon became accustomed to it, and they saw that they were in the snake house. All the cages were open, and the snakes were out. Some curled lazily into great scaly knots, others slipping gently about the floor. And in the middle of the snakes, on a log that had evidently been brought from one of the cages, sat Mary Poppins. Jane and Michael could hardly believe their eyes. Couple of birthday guests, ma'am, announced the brown bear respectfully. The snakes turned their heads inquiringly towards the children. Mary Poppins did not move but she spoke. And where's your overcoat, may I ask? She demanded, looking crossly but without surprise at Michael. And your hat and gloves, she snapped, turning to Jane. 
but before either of them had time to reply, there was a stir in the snake house. Hist, hist. The snakes, with a soft hissing sound, were rising up on end and bowing to something behind Jane and Michael. The brown bear took off his peaked cap, and slowly, Mary Poppins, too, stood up. My dear child, my very dear child, said a small, delicate, hissing voice. And out from the largest of the cages there came, with slow, soft, winding movements, a hamadryad. He slid in graceful curves past the bowing snakes and the brown bear towards Mary Poppins. And when he reached her, he raised the front half of his long golden body and, thrusting upwards his scaly golden hood, daintily kissed her, first on one cheek and then the other. So, he hissed softly, this is very pleasant, very pleasant indeed. It is long since your birthday fell on a full moon, my dear. He turned his head. Be seated, friends, he said, bowing graciously to the other snakes, who, at that word, slid reverently to the floor again, coiled themselves up, and gazed steadily at the hamadryad and Mary Poppins. The hamadryad turned then to Jane and Michael, and with a little shiver they saw that his face was smaller and more wizened than anything they had ever seen. They took a step forward, for his curious, deep eyes seemed to draw them towards him, Long and narrow they were, with a dark, sleepy look in them, and in the middle of that dark sleepiness, a wakeful light glittered like a jewel. "'And who, may I ask, are these?' he said in his soft, terrifying voice, looking at the children inquiringly. "'Miss Jane Banks and Mr. Michael Banks, at your service,' said the brown bear gruffly, as though he were half afraid. "'Her friends.' "'Ah, her friends. Then they are welcome.' My dears, pray, be seated. Jane and Michael, feeling somehow that they were in the presence of a king, as they had not felt when they had met the lion, with difficulty drew their eyes from that compelling gaze and looked round for something to sit on. The brown bear provided this by squatting down himself and offering them each a furry knee. Jane said in a whisper, He talks as though he were a great lord. He is. He's the lord of our world. The wisest and most terrible of us all, said the brown bear softly and reverently. The hamadryad smiled, a long, slow, secret smile, and turned to Mary Poppins. Cousin, he began, gently hissing. Is she really his cousin? whispered Michael. First cousin, once removed, on the mother's side, returned the brown bear, whispering the information behind his paw. But listen now, he's going to give the birthday present. Cousin, repeated the hamadryad, it is long since your birthday fell on the full moon, and long since we have been able to celebrate the event as we celebrate it tonight. I have, therefore, had time to give the question of your birthday present some consideration. And I have decided, he paused, and there was no sound in the snake house but the sound of many creatures all holding their breath, then I cannot do better than to give you one of my own skins. Indeed, cousin, it is too kind of you, began Mary Poppins, but the hamadryad held up his hood for silence. Not at all, not at all. You know that I change my skin from time to time, and that one more or less means little to me. Am I not? He paused and looked around him. The lord of the jungle hissed all the snakes in unison, as though the question and the answer were part of a well-known ceremony. The hamadryad nodded. 
So, he said, what seems good to me will seem so to you. It is a small enough gift, dear Mary, but it may serve for a belt or a pair of shoes or even a hatband. These things always come in useful, you know. And with that, he began to sway gently from side to side, and it seemed to Jane and Michael that as they watched, little waves were running up his body from tail to the head. Suddenly, he gave a long, twisting, corkscrew leap, and his own golder skin lay on the floor. And in its place, he was wearing a new coat of shining silver. Wait, said the Hamadryad, as Mary Poppins bent to pick up the skin. I will write a greeting upon it. And he ran his tail very quickly along his thrown skin, deftly bent the golden sheath into a circle, and diving his head through this as though it were a crown, offered it graciously to Mary Poppins. She took it, bowing. I just can't thank you enough, she began, and paused. She was evidently very pleased, for she kept running the skin backwards and forwards through her fingers, and looking at it admiringly. Don't try, said the Hamadryad. Psst. He went on and spread out his hood as though he were listening with it. Do I not hear the signal for the grand chain? Everybody listened. A bell was ringing, and a deep, gruff voice could be heard coming nearer and nearer, crying out, Grand chain, grand chain, everybody to the center for the grand chain and finale. Come along, come along, stand ready for the grand chain. I thought so, said the Hamadryad, smiling. You must be off, my dear. They'll be waiting for you to take your place in the center. Farewell till your next birthday. And he raised himself as he had done before and lightly saluted Mary Poppins on both cheeks. Hurry away, said the Hamadryad. I will take care of your young friends. Jane and Michael felt the brown bear moving under them, and they stood up. Past their feet, they could feel all the snakes slipping and writhing as they hurried from the snake house. Mary Poppins bowed towards the Hamadryad very ceremoniously, and without a backward glance at the children, went running towards the huge green square in the center of the zoo. You may leave us, said the Hamadryad to the brown bear, who, after bowing humbly, ran off with his cap in his hand, to where all the other animals were congregating round Mary Poppins. "'Will you go with me?' said the Hamadryad kindly to Jane and Michael. And without waiting for them to reply, he slid between them, and with a movement of his hood directed them to walk one on either side of him. "'It has begun,' he said, hissing with pleasure. And from the loud cries that were now coming from the green, the children could guess that he meant the grand chain." As they drew nearer, they could hear the animals singing and shouting, and presently they saw leopards and lions, beavers, camels, bears, cranes, antelopes, and many others, all forming themselves into a ring around Mary Poppins. Then the animals began to move, wildly crying their jungle songs, prancing in and out of the ring, and exchanging hand and wing as they went as dancers do in the grand chain of the Lancers. A little piping voice rose high above the rest. Oh, Mary, Mary, she's my dearie, she's my dearie-o. And they saw the penguin come dancing by, waving his short wings and singing lustily. He caught sight of them, bowed to the Hamadryad, and called out, I got it! Did you hear me singing it? It's not perfect, of course. Dearie does not rhyme exactly with Mary, but it'll do, it'll do. And he skipped off and offered his wing to a leopard. Jane and Michael watched the dance, the Hamadryad secret and still between them. 
As their friend the lion, dancing past, bent down to take the wing of a Brazilian pheasant in his paw, Jane shyly tried to put her feelings into words. I thought, sir, she began and stopped, feeling confused and not sure whether she ought to say it or not. Speak, my child, said the hamadryad. You thought? Well, that lions and birds and tigers and little animals. The hamadryad helped her. You thought they were natural enemies, that the lion could not meet a bird without eating it, nor the tiger, the hare. Jane blushed and nodded. Ah, you may be right. It is possible. But not on the birthday, said the hamadryad. Tonight the small are free from the great, and the great protect the small. Even I, he paused and seemed to be thinking deeply, even I can meet a barnacle goose without any thought of dinner on this occasion. And after all, he went on, flicking his terrible little forked tongue in and out as he spoke, it may be that to eat and be eaten are the same thing in the end. My wisdom tells me that this is probably so. We are all made of the same stuff, remember? We of the jungle, you of the city. The same substance composes us, the tree overhead, the stone beneath us, the bird, the beast, the star. We are all one, all moving to the same end. Remember that when you no longer remember me, my child. But how can tree be stone? A bird is not me. Jane is not a tiger, said Michael stoutly. You think not? said the Hamadryad's hissing voice. Look. And he nodded his head towards the moving mass of creatures before them. Birds and animals were now swaying together, closely encircling Mary Poppins, who was rocking lightly from side to side. Backwards and forwards went the swaying crowd, keeping time together, swinging like the pendulum of a clock. Even the trees were bending and lifting gently, and the moon seemed to be rocking in the sky as a ship rocks on the sea. Bird and beast and stone and star, we are all one, all one murmured the hamadryad, softly folding his hood about him as he himself swayed between the children. Child and serpent, star and stone, all one. The hissing voice grew softer. The cries of the swaying animals dwindled and became fainter. Jane and Michael, as they listened, felt themselves gently rocking too, or as if they were being rocked. Soft, shaded light fell on their faces. Asleep and dreaming, both of them, said a whispering voice. Was it the voice of the hamadryad, or their mother's voice as she tucked them in on her usual nightly round of the nursery? Good. Was that the brown bear, gruffly speaking, or Mr. Banks? Jane and Michael, rocking and swaying, could not tell. They could not tell. I had such a strange dream last night, said Jane, as she sprinkled sugar over her porridge at breakfast. I dreamed we were at the zoo, and it was Mary Poppins' birthday, and instead of animals in the cages, there were human beings, and all the animals were outside. Why, that's my dream. I dreamed that too, said Michael, looking very surprised. We can't both have dreamed the same thing, said Jane. Are you sure? Do you remember the lion who curled his mane, and the seal who wanted us to die for orange peel, said Michael? Of course I do and the babies inside the cage, and the penguin who couldn't find a rhyme, and the hamadryad? Then it couldn't have been a dream at all, said Jane emphatically. It must have been true. And if it was, she looked curiously at Mary Poppins, who was boiling the milk. Mary Poppins, she said, could Michael and I have dreamed the same dream? 
You and your dream, said Mary Poppins, sniffing. Eat your porridge, please, or you will have no buttered toast. But Jane would not be put off. She had to know. Mary Poppins, she said, looking very hard at her. Were you at the zoo last night? Mary Poppins' eyes popped. At the zoo? In the middle of the night? Me? A quiet, orderly person who knows that early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. But were you? Jane persisted. I have all I need of zoos in this nursery. Thank you, said Mary Poppins, uppishly. Hyenas, orangutans, all of you, sit up straight and no more nonsense. Jane poured out her milk. And then it must have been a dream, she said, after all. But Michael was staring open-mouthed at Mary Poppins, who was now making toast at the fire. Jane, he said in a shrill whisper, Jane, look. He pointed, and Jane, too, saw what he was looking at. Round her waist, Mary Poppins was wearing a belt made of golden, scaly snakeskin, and on it was written in curving, snaky writing, a present from the zoo. Christmas shopping. I smell snow, said Jane, as they got off the bus. I smell Christmas trees, said Michael. I smell fried fish, said Mary Poppins. And there was no time to smell anything else, for the bus had stopped outside the largest shop in the world, and they were all going into it to do their Christmas shopping. May we look at the windows first, said Michael, hopping excitedly on one leg. I don't mind, said Mary Poppins, with surprising mildness. Not that Jane and Michael were really very surprised, for they knew that the thing Mary Poppins liked doing best of all was looking in shop windows. They knew, too, that while they saw toys and books and holly boughs and plum cakes, Mary Poppins saw nothing but herself reflected there. Look, airplanes, said Michael, as they stopped before a window in which toy airplanes were careering through the air on wires. And look there, said Jane. And look there, said Jane. Two tiny black babies in one cradle. Just look at you, said Mary Poppins to herself, particularly noticing how nice her new gloves with the fur tops looked. They were the first pair she had ever had, and she thought she would never grow tired of looking at them in the shop windows, with her hands inside them. And having examined the reflection of the gloves, she went carefully over her whole person. Coat, hat, scarf, shoes with herself inside, and she thought that, on the whole, she had never seen anybody looking quite so smart and distinguished. But the winter afternoons she knew were short, and they had to be home by tea time, so with a sigh she wrenched herself away from her glorious reflection. Now we will go in, she said, and annoyed Jane and Michael very much by lingering at the haberdashery counter and taking great trouble over the choice of a reel of black cotton. The toy department, Michael reminded her, is in that direction. I know, thank you. Don't point, she said, and paid her bill with aggravating slowness. But at last, they found themselves alongside Father Christmas, who went to the greatest trouble in helping them choose their presents. That will do nicely for Daddy, said Michael, selecting a clockwork train with special signals. I will take care of it for him when he goes to the city. 
I think I will get this for mother, said Jane, pushing a small doll's perambulator, which she felt sure her mother had always wanted. Perhaps she would lend it to me sometimes. After that, Michael chose a packet of hairpins for each of the twins, and a mechano set for his mother, a mechanical beetle for Robert's and I, a pair of spectacles for Ellen, whose eyesight was perfectly good, and some bootlaces for Mrs. Brill, who always wore slippers. Jane, after some hesitation, eventually decided that a white dickey would be just the thing for Mr. Banks, and she bought Robinson Crusoe for the twins to read when they grew up. Until they are old enough, I can read it myself, she said. I am sure they will lend it to me. Mary Poppins then had a great argument with Father Christmas over a cake of soap. Why not life buoy, said Father Christmas, trying to be helpful and looking anxiously at Mary Poppins, for she was being rather snappy. I prefer vanolia, she said haughtily, and she bought a cake of that. My goodness, she said, smoothing the fur on her right hand glove. I wouldn't half like a cup of tea. Would you quarter like it, though? asked Michael. There is no call for you to be funny, said Mary Poppins, in such a voice that Michael felt that, indeed, there wasn't. And it is time to go home. There, she had said the very words they had been hoping she wouldn't say. That was so like Mary Poppins. Just five minutes longer, pleaded Jane. Ah, do, Mary Poppins. You look so nice in your new gloves, said Michael wily. But Mary Poppins, though she appreciated the remark, was not taken in by it. No, she said, and closed her mouth with a snap and stopped towards the doorway. Oh, dear, said Michael to himself as he followed her, staggering under the weight of his parcels. If only she would say yes for once. But Mary Poppins hurried on, and they had to go with her. Behind them, Father Christmas was waving his hand, and the fairy queen on the Christmas tree, and all the other dolls were smiling sadly and saying, Take me home, somebody. And the airplanes were all beating their wings and saying in bird-like voices, Let me fly. Oh, do let me fly. Jane and Michael hurried away, closing their ears to those enchanting voices and feeling that the time in the toy department had been unreasonably and cruelly short. And then, just as they came towards the shop entrance, the adventure happened. They were just about to spin the glass door and go out when they saw coming towards it from the pavement the running, flickering figure of a child. Look, said Jane and Michael both together. My gracious, exclaimed Mary Poppins and stood still. And well, she might, for the child had practically no clothes on, only a light, wispy strip of blue stuff that looked as though she had torn it from the sky to wrap round her naked body. It was evident that she did not know much about spinning doors, for she went round and round inside it, pushing it so that it would spin faster and laughing as it caught her and sent her whirling round and round. Then suddenly, with a quick little movement, she freed herself, sprang away from it, and landed inside the shop. She paused on tiptoe, turning her head this way and that, as though she were looking for someone. Then, with a start of pleasure, she caught sight of Jane and Michael and Mary Poppins as they stood, half hidden behind an enormous fir tree, and ran towards them joyously. "'Ah, there you are! Thank you for waiting!' "'I'm afraid I'm a little late,' said the child, "'stretching out her bright arms to Jane and Michael. "'Now,' she cocked her head on one side, "'aren't you glad to see me? "'Say yes, say yes.' 
Yes, said Jane, smiling, for nobody, she felt, could help being glad to see anyone so bright and happy. But who are you? she inquired curiously. What is your name? said Michael, gazing at her. Who am I? What is my name? Don't say you don't know me. Oh, surely, surely. The child seemed surprised and a little disappointed. She turned suddenly to Mary Poppins and pointed her finger. She knows me, don't you? I'm sure you know me. There was a curious look on Mary Poppins's face. Jane and Michael could see the blue fires in her eyes as though they reflected the blue of the child's dress and her brightness. Does it, she whispered, begin with an M? The child hopped on one leg delightedly. Of course it does, and you know it. M-A-I-A. -A. I'm Maya. She turned to Jane and Michael. Now you recognize me, don't you? I'm the second of the Pleiades. Electra, she's the oldest, couldn't come because she is minding Marope. Marope's the baby, and the other five of us come in between, all girls. Our mother was very disappointed at first not to have a boy, but now she doesn't mind. The child danced a few steps and burst out again in her excited little voice. Oh, Jane, oh, Michael, I've often watched you from the sky, and now I'm actually talking to you. There is nothing about you I don't know. Michael doesn't like having his hair brushed, and Jane has a thrush's egg in a jam jar on the mantelpiece, and your father is going bald on the top. I like him. It was he who first introduced us. Don't you remember? He said one evening last summer, Look, there are the Pleiades. Seven stars all together, the smallest in the sky. But there is one of them you can't see. He meant Marope, of course. She's still too young to stay up all night. She's such a baby that she has to go to bed very early. Some of them up there call us the little sisters. And sometimes we are called the seven dubs. But Orion calls us you girls and takes us hunting with him. But what are you doing here? demanded Michael, still very surprised. Maya laughed. Ask Mary Poppins. I am sure she knows. Tell us, Mary Poppins, said Jane. Well, said Mary Poppins snappily, I suppose you two aren't the only ones in the world who want to go shopping at Christmas. That's it, squealed Maya delightedly. She's quite right. I've come down to buy toys for them all. We can't get away very often, you know, because we're so busy making and storing up the spring rains. That's the special job of the Pleiades. However, we drew lots and I won. Wasn't it lucky? She hugged herself happily. Now, come on, I can't stay very long, and you must come back and help me choose. And dancing about them, running now to one and now to the other, she shepherded them back to the toy department, and as they went, the crowds of shoppers stood and stared at them and dropped their parcels with astonishment. So cold for her. What can her parents be thinking? said the mothers with voices that were suddenly soft and gentle. I mean to say, said the fathers, it shouldn't be allowed. Must write to the Times about it. And their voices were unnaturally gruff and gritty. The shop walkers behaved curiously, too. As the little group passed, they bowed to Maya as though she were a queen. But none of them, not Jane, nor Michael, nor Mary Poppins, nor Maya, noticed or heard anything extraordinary. They were too busy with their own extraordinary adventure. Here we are, said Maya, as she pranced into the toy department. Now, what shall we choose? An assistant with a start bowed respectfully as soon as he saw her. I want something for each of my sisters. Six of them. You must help me, please, said Maya, smiling at him. 
Certainly, madam, said the assistant agreeably. First, my eldest sister, said Maya. She's very domestic. What about that little stove with the silver saucepans? Yes. And that striped broom? We are so troubled with stardust, and she will love having that to sweep it up with. The assistant began wrapping the things in colored paper. Now for Taget. She likes dancing. Don't you think, Jane, a skipping rope would be just the thing for her? You'll tie them carefully, won't you? She said to the assistant. I have a long way to go. She fluttered on among the toys, never standing still for a moment, but walking with light, quick silver steps, as though she were still twinkling in the sky. Mary Poppins and Jane and Michael could not take their eyes off her as she flickered from one of them to another, asking their advice. Then there's Alcyone. She is difficult. She's so quiet and thoughtful and never seems to want anything. A book, do you think, Mary Poppins? What is this family? The Swiss Robinsons? I think she would like that. And if she doesn't, she can look at the pictures. Wrap it up. She handed the book to the assistant. I know what Selena wants, she went on. A hoop. She can bowl it across the sky in the daytime and make a circle of it to spin about her at night. She'll love that red and blue one. The assistant bowed again and began to wrap up the hoop. Now there are only two little ones left. Michael, what would you advise for us to rope? What about a top, said Michael, giving the question his earnest consideration. A humming top. What a good idea. She will love to watch it go waltzing and singing down the sky. And what do you think from a rope, the baby Jane? John and Barbara, said Jane Chadley, have rubber ducks. Maya gave a... Maya gave a delighted squeak and hugged herself. Oh, Jane, how wise you are. I would never have thought of that. A rubber duck from a rope, please. A blue one with yellow eyes. The assistant tied up the parcels while Maya ran around him, pushing at the paper, giving a tug to the string to make sure that it was firmly knotted. That's right, she said. You see, I mustn't drop anything. Michael, who had been staring steadily at her ever since she first appeared, turned and said in a loud whisper to Mary Poppins, but she has no purse. Who will pay for the toys? None of your business, snapped Mary Poppins, and it's rude to whisper. But she began to fumble busily in her pocket. What did you say? demanded Maya with round, surprised eyes. Pay? Nobody will pay. There is nothing to pay, is there? She turned her shining gaze upon the assistant. Nothing at all, madam, he assured her, as he put the parcels into her arms and bowed again. I thought not. You see, she said, turning to Michael, the whole point of Christmas is that things should be given away, isn't it? Besides, what could I pay with? We have no money up there. And she laughed at the mere suggestion of such a thing. Now we must go, she went on, taking Michael's arm. We must all go home. It's very late, and I heard your mother telling you that you must be home in time for tea. Besides, I must get back too. Come, and drawing Michael and Jane and Mary Poppins after her, she led the way through the shop and out by the spinning door. Outside the entrance, Jane suddenly said, But there's no present for her. She's bought something for all the others and nothing for herself. Maya has no Christmas present. And she began to search hurriedly through the parcels she was carrying to see what she could spare for Maya. Mary Poppins gave a quick glance into the window beside her. She saw herself shining back at her, very smart, very interesting. Her hat on straight, her coat nicely pressed, and her new gloves just completing the whole effect. 
you be quiet, she said to Jane in her snappiest voice. And at the same time, she whipped off her new gloves and thrust one onto each of Maya's hands. There, she said gruffly, it's cold today. You'll be glad of them. Maya looked at the gloves, hanging very large and almost empty upon her hands. She said nothing, but moving close to Mary Poppins, she reached up her spare arm and put it round Mary Poppins's neck and kissed her. A long look passed between them as they smiled, and they smiled as people smile who understand each other. Maya turned then, and with her hand, lightly touched the cheeks of Jane and Michael. And for a moment, they all stood in a ring at the windy corner, gazing at each other as though they were enchanted. I have been so happy, said Maya softly, breaking the silence. Don't forget me, will you? They shook their heads. Goodbye, said Maya. Goodbye, said the others, though it was the last thing they wanted to say. Then Maya, poised on tiptoe, lifted up her arms and sprang into the air. She began to walk up it, step by step, climbing ever higher, as though there were invisible stairs cut into the gray sky. She waved to them as she went, and the three of them waved back. "'What on earth is happening?' somebody said close by. "'But it's not possible,' said another voice. "'Preposterous!' cried a third. For a crowd was gathering to witness the extraordinary sight of Maya returning home. A policeman pushed his way through the throng, scattering the people with his truncheon. "'Now, now, what's all this?' An accident? He looked up, his gaze following that of the rest of the crowd. Here, he said angrily, shaking his fist at Maya. Come down. What are you doing up there? Holding up the traffic and all? Come down. We can't have this kind of thing. Not in a public place. It isn't natural. Far away, they heard Maya laughing and saw something bright dangling from her arm. It was the skipping rope. After all, the parcel had come undone. For a moment longer, they saw her prancing up the airy stair, and then a bank of cloud hid her from their eyes. They knew she was behind it, though, because of the brightness that shone about its thick, dark edge. "'Well, I'm jiggered,' said the policeman, staring upwards and scratching his head under his helmet. "'And well you might be,' said Mary Poppins, with such a ferocious snap that anyone else might have thought she was really cross with the policeman.' But Jane and Michael were not taken in by that snap, for they could see in Mary Poppins's eyes something that, if she were anybody else but Mary Poppins, might have been described as tears. Could we have imagined it, said Michael, when they got home and told the story to their mother? Perhaps, said Mrs. Banks. We imagine strange and lovely things, my darling. But what about Mary Poppins's gloves, said Jane? We saw her give them away to Maya. And she's not wearing them now, so it must be true. What, Mary Poppins, exclaimed Mrs. Banks, your best fur-topped gloves, you gave them away? Mary Poppins sniffed. My gloves are my gloves, and I do what I like with them, she said haughtily. And she straightened her hat and went down to the kitchen to have her tea. West Wind. It was the first day of spring. Jane and Michael knew this at once because they heard Mr. Banks singing in his bath, and there was only one day in the year when he did that. They always remembered that particular morning. For one thing, it was the first time they were allowed to come downstairs for breakfast, 
and for another, Mr. Banks lost his black bag, so that the day began with two extraordinary happenings. Where is my bag? shouted Mr. Banks, turning round and round in the hall like a dog chasing his tail. And everybody else began running round and round too. Ellen and Mrs. Brill and the children, even Roberts and I made a special effort and turned round twice. At last, Mr. Banks discovered the bag himself in his study and he rushed into the hall with it, holding it aloft. Now, he said, as though he were delivering a sermon, my bag is always kept in one place, here, on the umbrella stand. Who put it in the study, he roared. You did, my dear, when you took the income tax papers out of it last night, said Mrs. Banks. Mr. Banks gave her such a hurt look that she wished she had been less tactless and had said she had put it there herself. Humph, he said, blowing his nose very hard and taking his overcoat from its peg. He walked with it to the front door. Hello, he said more cheerfully. The parrot tulips are in bud. He went into the garden and sniffed the air. Hmm, winds in the west, I think. He looked toward Admiral Boom's house where the telescope weathercock swung. I thought so, he said. Westerly weather, bright and balmy. I won't take an overcoat. And with that, he picked up his bag and his bowler hat and hurried away to the city. Did you hear what he said? Michael grabbed Jane's arm. She nodded. The wind's in the west, she said slowly. Neither of them said any more, but there was a thought in each of their minds that they wished was not there. They forgot it soon, however, for everything seemed to be as it always was, and the spring sunlight lit up the house so beautifully that nobody remembered it needed a coat of paint and new wallpapers. On the contrary, they all found themselves thinking that it was the best house in Cherry Tree Lane. But trouble began after luncheon. Jane had gone down to dig in the garden with Roberts and I. She had just sown a row of radish seed when she heard a great commotion in the nursery and the sound of hurrying footsteps on the stairs. Presently, Michael appeared, very red in the face and panting loudly. Look, Jane, look, he cried, and held out his hand. Within it lay Mary Poppins's compass, with the disc frantically swinging round the arrow as it trembled in Michael's shaking hand. The compass, said Jane, and looked at him questioningly. Suddenly, Michael burst into tears. She gave it to me, he wept. She said I could have it all for myself now. Oh, oh, there must be something wrong. What is going to happen? She has never given me anything before. Perhaps she was only being nice, said Jane, to soothe him. But in her heart, she felt as disturbed as Michael was. She knew very well that Mary Poppins never wasted time in being nice. And yet, strange to say, during that afternoon, Mary Poppins never said a cross word. Indeed, she hardly said a word at all. She seemed to be thinking very deeply, and when they asked questions, she answered them in a faraway voice. At last, Michael could bear it no longer. Oh, do be cross, Mary Poppins, do be cross again. It is not like you. Oh, I feel so anxious. And indeed, his heart felt heavy with the thought that something, he did not quite know what, was about to happen at number 17, Cherry Tree Lane. Trouble, trouble, and it will trouble you, retorted Mary Poppins crossly, in her usual voice. And immediately, he felt a little better. Perhaps it's only a feeling, he said to Jane. Perhaps everything is all right, and I'm just imagining. Don't you think so, Jane? 
Probably, said Jane slowly, but she was thinking hard, and her heart felt tight in her body. The wind grew wilder towards evening and blew in little gusts about the house. It went puffing and whistling down the chimneys, slipping in through the cracks under the windows, turning the nursery carpet up at the corners. Mary Poppins gave them their supper and cleared away the things, stacking them neatly and methodically. Then she tidied up the nursery and put the kettle on the hob. There, she said, glancing around the room to see that everything was all right. She was silent for a minute. Then she put one hand lightly on Michael's head and the other on Jane's shoulder. Now, she said, I am just going to take the shoes down for Robins and I to clean. Behave yourselves, please, till I come back. She went out and shut the door quietly behind her. Suddenly, as she went, they both felt they must run after her, but something seemed to stop them. They remained quiet with their elbows on the table, waiting for her to come back. Each was trying to reassure the other without saying anything. How silly we are, said Jane presently. Everything's all right. But she knew that she said it more to comfort Michael than because she thought it was true. The nursery clock ticked loudly from the mantelpiece. The fire flickered and crackled and slowly died down. They sat there at the table, waiting. At last, Michael said uneasily, She's been gone a very long time, hasn't she? The wind whistled and cried about the house, as if in reply. The clock went on ticking its solemn double note. Suddenly the silence was broken by the sound of the front door shutting with a loud bang. Michael, said Jane, starting up. Jane, said Michael, with a white, anxious look on his face. They listened. Then they ran quickly to the window and looked out. Down below, just outside the front door, stood Mary Poppins, dressed in her coat and hat, with her carpet bag in one hand and her umbrella in the other. The wind was blowing wildly about her, tugging at her skirt, tilting her hat rakishly to one side. But it seemed to Jane and Michael that she did not mind, for she smiled as though she and the wind understood each other. She paused for a moment on the step and glanced back toward the front door. Then, with a quick movement, she opened the umbrella, though it was not raining, and thrust it over her head. The wind, with a wild cry, slipped under the umbrella, pressing it upwards, as though trying to force it out of Mary Poppins's hand. But she held on tightly, and that, apparently, was what the wind wanted her to do. For presently, it lifted the umbrella higher into the air and Mary Poppins from the ground. It carried her lightly, so that her toes just grazed along the garden path. Then it lifted her over the front gate and swept her upwards toward the branches of the cherry trees in the lane. She's going, Jane, she's going, cried Michael, weeping. Quick, cried Jane, let us get the twins. They must see the last of her. She had no doubt now, nor had Michael, that Mary Poppins had gone for good because the wind had changed. They each seized a twin and rushed back to the window. Mary Poppins was in the upper air now, floating away over the cherry trees and the roofs of the houses, holding tightly to the umbrella with one hand and to the carpet bag with the other. The twins began to cry quietly. With their free hands, Jane and Michael opened the window and made one last effort to stay Mary Poppins's flight. Mary Poppins, they cried. Mary Poppins, come back. But she either did not hear or deliberately took no notice. 
for she went on sailing on and on, up into the cloudy, whistling air, till at last she was wafted away over the hill, and the children could see nothing but the trees bending and moaning under the wild west wind. She did what she said she would anyway. She stayed till the wind changed, said Jane, sighing and turning sadly from the window. She took John to his cot and put him into it. Michael said nothing, but as he brought Barbara back and tucked her into bed, he was sniffing uncomfortably. I wonder, said Jane, if we'll ever see her again. Suddenly, they heard voices on the stairs. Children, children, Mrs. Banks was calling as she opened the door. Children, I am very cross. Mary Poppins has left us. Yes, said Jane and Michael. You knew then, said Mrs. Banks, rather surprised. Did she tell you she was leaving? They shook their heads, and Mrs. Banks went on. It's outrageous. One minute here and gone the next. Not even an apology. Simply said, I'm going, and off she went. Anything more preposterous, more thoughtless, more discourteous. What is it, Michael? She broke off crossly, for Michael had grasped for Michael had grasped her skirt in his hands and was shaking her. What is it, child? Did she say she'd come back? He cried, nearly knocking his mother over. Tell me, did she? You will not behave rudely, Michael, she said, loosening his hold. I don't remember what she said, except that she was going. But I certainly shan't have her back if she does want to come. Leaving me high and dry with nobody to help me and without a word of notice. Oh, mother, said Jane reproachfully. You are a very cruel woman, said Michael, clenching his fist as though at any minute he would have to strike her. Children, I'm ashamed of you. Really, I am. To want anybody back who has treated your mother so badly? I'm utterly shocked. Jane burst into tears. Mary Poppins is the only person I want in the world, Michael wailed and flung himself onto the floor. Really, children, really, I don't understand you. Do be good, I beg of you. There was nobody to look after you tonight. I have to go out to dinner, and it's Ellen's day off. I shall have to send Mrs. Brill up. And she kissed them absent-mindedly, and went away with an anxious little line on her forehead. Well, if I ever did, her going away and leaving you poor children in the lurch like that, said Mrs. Brill a moment later, bustling in and setting to work on them. A heart of stone, that's what that girl had, and no mistake, or my name's not Clara Brill. Always keeping herself to herself, too, and not even a lace handkerchief or a hat pin to remember her by. Get up, will you please, Master Michael? Mrs. Brill went on, panting heavily. How we stood her so long, I don't know, with her airs and graces and all. What a lot of buttons, Miss Jane. Stand still now, and let me undress you, Master Michael. Plain she was, too. Nothing much to look at. Indeed, all things considered, I don't know that we won't be better off after all. Now, Miss Jane, where's your nightgown? Why, what's this under your pillow? Mrs. Brill had drawn out a small, knobbly parcel. What is it? Give it to me. Give it, said Jane, trembling with excitement, and she took it from Mrs. Brill's hands very quickly. Michael came and stood near her, and watched her undo the string and tear away the brown paper. Mrs. Brill, without waiting to see what emerged from the package, went in to the twins. The last wrapping fell to the floor, and the thing that was in the parcel lay in Jane's hand. It's her picture, she said in a whisper, looking closely at it. Inside a little curly frame was a painting of Mary Poppins, 
and underneath it was written, Mary Poppins by Bert. That's the matchman. He did it, said Michael, and took it in his hand so that he could have a better look. Jane found suddenly that there was a letter attached to the painting. She unfolded it carefully. It ran, Dear Jane, Michael had the compass, so the picture is for you. Au revoir. Mary Poppins. She read it out loud till she came to the words she couldn't understand. Mrs. Brill, she called, what does au revoir mean? Au revoir, dear? Shrieked Mrs. Brill from the next room. Why, doesn't it mean, oh, let me see, I'm not up in these foreign tongues. Doesn't it mean, God bless you? No, no, I'm wrong. I think, Miss Jane, dear, it means to meet again. Jane and Michael looked at each other. Joy and understanding shone in their eyes. They knew what Mary Poppins meant. Michael gave a long sigh of relief. Oh, that's all right, he said shakily. She always does what she says she will. He turned away. Michael, are you crying, Jane asked. He twisted his head and tried to smile at her. No, I am not, he said. It is only my eyes. She pushed him gently towards his bed, and as he got in, she slipped the portrait of Mary Poppins into his hand, hurriedly, in case she should regret it. You have it for tonight, darling, whispered Jane, and she tucked him in just as Mary Poppins used to do. The end. Thanks so much for joining me for this month's Read Along podcast. Stay tuned for more podcasts real soon.